Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website. Give them a call, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We've got terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy. Bob is the chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll be talking about the differences between liberal and conservative judges. We'll also visit with Andy Joppa. Andrew Joppa is a professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston and the author of many books, his latest, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. It's a great read. Uh, we'll be talking about his column on four famous fallacies in fake news war on Trump. Boy, they all got it wrong, and we'll find out how. It is June the 30th, last day of June, and on this day in 1934 in Germany, Nazi leader Adolf Hitler ordered the purge of his own political party, assassinating hundreds of Nazis whom he believed had the potential to become political enemies in the future. The leadership of the Nazi stormtroopers, uh, where four million members had helped bring Hitler to power in the early 1930s, was especially targeted. Hitler feared that some of his followers had taken his early National Socialism propaganda too seriously and thus might compromise his plan to suppress workers' rights in exchange for German industry making the country war-ready. In the early 1920s, the rank of Hitler's Nazi party swelled with resentful Germans who sympathized with the party's bitter hatred of Germans' democratic government, leftist politics, and Jews. In November 1923, after German... Uh, Government resumed the payment of war reparations to Britain and France. The Nazis launched the Beer Hall Punch, I guess it's pronounced Putsch, uh, their first attempt at seizing the German uh, government by force. Hitler hoped that his national revolution in Bavaria would spread to the dissatisfied German army, which in turn would bring down the government in Berlin. However, the uprising was immediately suppressed, and Hitler was arrested and sentenced to five years in prison for high treason. Sent to Landsberg Jail, he spent his time dictating his autobiography, Mein Kampf, and working on his oratorical skills. After nine months in prison, political pressure from supporters of the Nazi party forced his release. During the next few years, Hitler and the other leading Nazis organized their party as a fanatical mass movement. In 1932, President Paul von Hindenburg defeated a presidential bid by Hitler, but in January 1933 he appointed Hitler chancellor, hoping that the powerful Nazi leader could be brought to heel as a member of the president's cabinet. However, Hindenburg underestimated Hitler's political audacity, and one of the new chancellor's first acts was to use the burning of the Reichstag building as a pretext for calling general elections. The police, under Nazi Hermann Goering, uh, suppressed much of the party's opposition before the election. The Nazi Party joined forces with the German National People's Party uh, to gain a bare working majority in the Reichstag. Shortly after, Hitler took on absolute power through his enabling acts. In 1934, Hindenburg died, and the last remnants of Germany's democratic government were dismantled, leaving Hitler the sole master of a nation intent on war and genocide. That's how evil gets in control. Hitler. <clears throat> 
While terrorists are blending in with migrants entering the Pan- entering Panama in an effort to get to the United States, this according to the Panama Minister of Foreign Affairs, Erica Moyes, members of terrorist organizations and sanctioned parties have found their way to Panama, where they are not permitted to enter in the first place, she said. Uh, Panama's biometric identification measures have recognized and detained individuals linked to the extremist groups attempting to pass through the country with migrants. Vice President Kamala Harris, the designated Biden administration border czar, did not schedule a trip to Panama to address the root causes of migration to Central America. Moyes lamented in the opinion piece titled The Literal Gap in U.S. Migration Policy, with the subhead Kamala Harris's recent trip to Latin America missed a brewing crisis in Panama's Darien region. Vice President Kamala Harris, a recent trip to Central America, her first official mission abroad, is emblematic of the weight of the White House has placed on the issue of migration, she wrote. Unfortunately, however, Panama was left off the itinerary of her two-day trip, which included stops in Guatemala and Mexico. This despite the unprecedented number of migrants attempting to cross our border through a treacherous area of the jungle known as Darien Gap. The minister noted that the gap is a particularly vulnerable and dangerous place to migration. The problem of uncontrolled migration is not isolated to Texas, California, New Mexico, or Arizona, she wrote. Farther south on the Panamanian border, a parallel crisis unfolding at unprecedented numbers of migrants from Haiti, Cuba, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East attempt to cross the Darien Gap en route to Canada and the United States. The situation here is not a uniquely Northern American or Panamanian problem. It is an international humanitarian crisis that knows no borders and requires immediate collaboration. Panama, for our part, looks forward to working closely with Biden administration to formulate an effective policy response, she wrote. The gap is a place where uh, vetting of visas is particularly suspect, she said. The nations of America uh, must work collaboratively to control the flow of migration, continued. Further among them is strengthening visa requirements and background checks throughout Latin America. A vast number of migrants crossing the Darien started their journey in South America, arriving through ports of entry in countries where visa requirements are less strict. Panama's migration problems will ultimately become a problem for North America, she concluded. Left unchecked, this migration issue will compound, and its ramifications will reach far beyond Panama's border, she wrote, even as Panama remains steadfast in its commitment to care for the migrants who have put themselves in our care, particularly those who are victims of human trafficking. The scale of the humanitarian crisis in our country and across the region demands international attention, she wrote. We cannot single-handedly protect these migrants or address the underlying problems that have been driven them into our borders. The situation will not be resolved if international communities uh, continue to approach it as a U.S. problem or a Panamanian problem. It's reality. It is everyone's problem. Very well spoken. And, of course, I just underscore the whole notion that these are, in many cases, terrorists. Certainly, they have nothing good in mind when they plan to come to the United States. This is truly a humanitarian crisis, and uh, uh, right now Biden just seems to be ignoring it. Well, I think actually embracing it, sadly. Well, it'll be interesting to see how the mainstream media and Democrats who have been pulling their hair out, shouting insurrection since January 6th, respond to this. On Tuesday, a group of left-wing activists from the Sunrise Movement stormed the White House, demanding that Joe Biden put climate issues at the top of his priority list as around a dozen protesters were arrested, human events reported. 
According to the reports, protesters blocked all 10 entrances to the White House, demanding Biden succumb to the Green New Deal agenda and include fully funded civilian climate corps in his uh, infrastructure bill. You may be aware that AOC is demanding $70 billion to uh, fund a civilian climate corps. That says it all, an activist at the process said at the uh, Washington Times as he held a sign that read, Biden, you coward, fight for us. <laughs> uh, those in attendance in particular hope Mr. Biden will jettison the $1.2 trillion infrastructure package he negotiated last week with a group of bipartisan senators. One of the focuses heavily on traditional projects such as roads and bridges as well as broadband connectivity. Throughout the event, the activists chanted, no climate, no deal. Instead of working with Republicans, the protesters want the White House and congressional Democrats to go it alone and pass an even larger package that includes major spending on what they call human infrastructure. The latter includes job training for felons, expanded child care, and extensive climate justice provisions. What a bunch of nuts. Climate justice is ending all new fossil fuel projects in the United States and ending our support for the cause of the crisis in projects abroad, the group said before the protest. Climate justice is spending this decade ensuring clean air and drinkable water, safe homes, good jobs across racial class and generational lines. Whether we are inside or outside the White House, Biden is going to hear our demands. The event's description is on the website, she said. It is a program organized through the Department of Interior and Agriculture and aims to conserve and restore public lands and waters, bolster community resilience, increase reforestation, increase carbon sequestration in the agricultural sector, protect biodiversity, improve access to recreation, and access the changing climate instead of the Civilian Climate Corps. New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was among the lawmakers that participated in the protest. They want you to think, oh, this is a new idea. This is too ambitious. It's too crazy. How about this? Last time we introduced a civilian climate corps in this country, we hired and mobilized a quarter million people in three months, she said in regards to the New Deal era, the Civilian Conservation Corps. We're going to get this into the infrastructure bill, she said. Nakaya Jefferson, one of the group's organizers, believed that Biden should negotiate with her and progressives rather than negotiate with Republicans. Uh, These people are nuts. We elected you. The youth vote carried the election. If you're going to negotiate our, our lives and livability of our planet, negotiate with us, she said. So we will sit here until you commit to the side of climate justice, commit to an American jobs plan written with bold, ambitious ambition against the climate crisis, including civilian climate corps, and pass it through reconciliation immediately, or you will not pass a bill at all, she said. Crazy. I'm not kidding. (laughs) That really happened. Now, you notice that they didn't have some sort of an insurrection uh, claim. They didn't didn't put the people in jail for storming the White House. Uh, Totally set of rules, different set of rules for these folks as opposed to on January the 6th. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show 
here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. And you can find out more by visiting the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us uh, Bob Levy. He is a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C. and devoted to free markets, private property, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Cato.org. So, a very robust website. So, Bob, uh, let's talk about the differences between liberal and conservative judges in a way that uh, uh, they understand and apply the Constitution. So, how does the Supreme Court currently stack up? Well, until uh, Scalia's death, the mix was four conservatives, four liberals, and one swing vote. That was Kennedy, who leaned conservative. So, that mix wasn't changed by Gorsuch's appointment to fill Scalia's seat. Um, But Brett Kavanaugh's ascension to Kennedy's seat moved the court in a somewhat more conservative direction. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement by Amy Coney Barrett sealed the deal. Uh, So the mix is now six conservatives and three liberals. The next retiree is likely to be Stephen Breyer, who's 80, 
and his replacement by a Biden um, appointee is not likely to shift the balance, although it will substitute a younger liberal for an older liberal. Yeah, and of course, uh, he's getting some pressure <laughs> to retire. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Oh, my goodness. So tell us more about the latest appointee, Amy Coney Barrett. Well, she's young, uh, in her upper 40s, conservative. She's what's called a textualist, <clears throat> believes in the words that are actually written into the, do- the document. Uh, her background is a Seventh Circuit judge, a law professor at Notre Dame. Uh, she's Catholic. She's anti-abortion. She has uh, seven kids. Two of them are Haitian. Uh, one of them has Down syndrome. Uh, so she's unusual in a number of respects. She clerked for Scalia. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a member of the Federal Society, uh, which, by the way, I was privileged to serve on their board for many years. Uh, she will be good, I think, on deregulation, on school choice, on guns, on the non-delegation doctrine, campaign finance, affirmative action, federalism, religious liberty. Uh, she wouldn't be my cup of tea on the social issues like gay rights, uh, drugs and immigration, as well as uh, things like privacy, executive power, voting rights, deference to the legislature. But on balance, uh, in my opinion, she's better than a nominee we would likely get from the uh, Biden administration. Interesting. So how could Republicans justify their rush job appointing Barrett after their blockage of Merrick Garland in the last year of the uh, 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 Obama administration? Well, you know, in the Garland case, Senator McConnell stated that Garland shouldn't be confirmed in a presidential election year during which the Senate and the presidency were controlled by opposing parties. Uh, He argued that when that occurs, the voters should have an opportunity in the upcoming election to determine who will nominate the next justice. But then in the Barrett case, uh, McConnell noted that the Senate and the presidency were controlled by the same party. Now, that said, he didn't allow a vote in the Garland case. He refused even to hold hearings, and he was even willing to confirm Barrett uh, during the lame duck session after the election. So that didn't quite comport with his voters should decide principle, uh, because the Democrats had already won the uh, presidential and the congressional elections. The Republicans were not required to approve Merrick Garland. They simply played hardball politics, just as the Democrats would have done if the tables had been turned. Uh, no rules were broken. No rules were changed. And as a matter of fact, the Democrats indicated uh, that they would have done the same thing. Chuck Schumer uh, said, we should not confirm any Bush nominee to the Supreme Court except in extraordinary circumstances. When Biden was chair of the Senate Judiciary, uh, he said said the president should follow precedent, not name a nominee until after the election is complete, and the committee should not schedule hearings until the campaign season is over. So basically, we're talking about hardball politics. Boy, there's something, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So do you think uh, Amy Barrett should recuse herself from the election-related issues? Well, Trump's uh, hope and intention in nominating her, um, maybe she would rule for him in cases that might come before the court. I don't think her grounds for her recusal. So there's no doubt that every president hopes that the nominee is going to support him and his uh, policies. Mm -hmm. But recusal 
is appropriate only when a reasonable person might conclude that there would otherwise be an appearance of partiality. And Barrett's partiality, if it exists, it's a personal matter. It's not dictated by Donald Trump. So I, I don't believe a reasonable person could anticipate that Barrett is partial, which, by the way, she's vigorously denied, just because Donald Trump might desire her to be partial. Uh, and in any event, Supreme Court justices, as you know, they're not bound by the code of judicial conduct. So recusal was her decision and hers alone. Yeah. Surprising to me how, how many uh, votes come down nine to nothing or seven to two. So they don't necessarily break down uh, according to the way you've described the breakdown of, uh, of the uh, court right now. Confirmation hearings aren't very illuminating. So what types of questions might be more constructive during these hearings? Well, I think broadly questions regarding judicial philosophy, not regarding particular cases or even particular issues. <clears throat> so some questions might be, should stare decisis, that is respect for precedent, uh, be weaker when you're limiting constitutional rights, like in the Kilo eminent domain case, and stronger when you're protecting constitutional rights, like in Heller, the, the gun case. Uh, should judges start with a presumption that a statute is constitutional or a presumption that we have individual liberty and the government can't intrude on that liberty. Can a constitutional provision apply more broadly than the ratifiers intended? A good example of that, by the way, is the Equal Protection Clause, ratified in 1868, interpreted to bar racial discrimination in public schools, even though that was the prevailing practice for 90 years after the Equal Protection Clause was ratified. Uh, a question might be, does the text sometimes require an assessment of evolving standards mm -hmm. like the living constitutional folks believe? And a, an example there might be, what is the meaning of unreasonable searches? What is cruel and unusual punishment? Uh, what should the guidepost be when the text is ambiguous? or the text leads to absurd uh, results? Uh, does it raise separation of powers concerns for courts to rewrite statutes after they find that a particular provision is unconstitutional, like with respect to the Obamacare uh, individual mandate, which effectively the court did rewrite? Uh, should the court treat unenumerated rights differently than enumerated rights? And to what extent should the court take into account its institutional legitimacy the way Roberts wants it to? Roberts upheld Obamacare. Roberts upheld LBGTQ rights in Title VII despite explicit uh, textual provisions that would have suggested otherwise. And he was intent on preserving institutional legitimacy. So those are the kinds of questions I think would be more uh, productive. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Chief Justice uh, John Roberts claims that the court is not political. Was he correct when he said we do not have Obama judges or Trump judges? Well, he obviously knows that presidents get to nominate their choices, and their choices are likely going to have the same political philosophy as the president. So what he meant uh, is that each judge should have primary allegiance and responsibility to the law and the Constitution. Uh, not an allegiance to the president's personal policy preferences. So Supreme Court justices appointed by liberals, <clears throat> they're surely going to disagree with these justices 
appointed by uh, conservatives. That's because they have a different theory of uh, constitutional interpretation. It's not because their actions are necessarily directed at satisfying the president or satisfying his electoral base. So I think the key there is judicial independence. And in that sense, uh, yes, I think Roberts was mostly right. Uh, We don't have um, Obama judges or Trump judges. They're judges who are addressing their uh, jurisprudence uh, to the law and the Constitution. Bob, just to appreciate uh, these uh, comments and thoughts on the uh, Supreme Court justices, Bob Levy, again, the chairman of the Cato Institute, cato.org is the website. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to visit with Andrew Jabba, professor and author of Josepha Savaz. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Offshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit gulfshoreplayhouse.org. That's gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse. As you just heard, uh, building a new performing arts center in downtown Naples and bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best, please visit the website, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us Professor Andrew Joppa, author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. So I know uh, that uh, we've 
decided to start with some good news on our interviews on each Wednesday morning. So what's the good news? Well, in this case, the, the good news is the, the challenge of the bad news. The, the group, um, the Committee to Support and Defend, uh, headed by Lieutenant Colonel Allen West, has sent out to uh, Secretary of Defense Austin a challenge that he honor his oath of office. <clears throat> Excuse me. After we've seen some of the uh, presentations in front of Congress by uh, the Chairman of Joint Chief of Staff, General Miley, and uh, the Chief of Naval Operations, uh, Admiral Gilday, all supporting the uh, the need to purge the military of white uh, white supremacists and to uh, inculcate the the concept of critical race theory. Uh, this group is pushing back strongly uh, in terms of uh, what the military is doing. Let me just uh, give you a quick quote quote from Alan West on this. Uh, Alan says, as such, we put our nation's leadership on notice. We believe that the hard left turn towards socialism and Marxism endangers our citizens and the future of this great nation. One of its major military members, retired uh, Major General Joseph Arbuckle, said critical race theory and other such programs were created by Marxists to divide people into groups based on oppressor versus oppressed. So it is that kind of language that's going into uh, Secretary of Defense Austin uh, with an attempt to try to bring the, uh, the military back into a non-politicized form. Um, I do have a, a cynical view, though, that... Uh, they are intentionally trying to uh, self-filter in the military. In other words, by creating these kind of programs, I think they're trying to ensure that no one of those mindsets, no one who would support Donald Trump or support, uh, you know, the individual rights as compared to group rights uh, will actually enlist in the military. So uh, I think it's a very devious process to, in fact, turn the military entirely uh, into a, f a functional unit of, of domestic control. And that's a very cynical and conspiratorial position, but I think that's what we're looking at, Bob. I, I fully agree with you. I, I did see some other good news. Lohmeyer, I believe his name, was the head of the uh, space program, and he was relieved of his command because uh, he did not go along with uh, the, uh, uh, the race theory. And, uh, well, Lohmeyer is very articulate, and I think his book uh, that we had talked about previously, I think, articulates what he's been going through. I, I think that he's uh, become, if I might in the most positive way, say he's become the poster child for resistance to this uh, military process yeah. of, of, of indoctrination, we can call it, uh, removed from command in, his, in, the, in the Space Force, uh, not thrown out of the military, but certainly uh, uh, it's a demotion to be removed from command. Uh, and uh, Lohmeyer is being focused on by, in fact, the Committee to Support and Defend uh, as one of their uh, strongest indications of the problem with the United States military. And I think we can't, we, certainly we can't ignore a totally politicized military as a serious threat. I mean, this has been pointed out continuously throughout human history. Uh, we can see it uh, pointed out in the Federalist uh, by Hamilton in terms of the dangers of a, uh, a politicized military, and that is what we're going through right now. It is a very, very dangerous indicator, Bob. It is indeed. Uh, I did read, I thought I read, that uh, the guy that relieved him of his command uh, was uh, found, uh, his uh, actions were found to be unconstitutional. I don't know if it was related to relieving to his command, but Nevertheless, some sort of a sanction was put down on, on the, the guy that, that took that action, So, which is more good news as some justification anyhow. Well, again, that is my point, and it's yours now, is, is there is some pushback on this, and I think whenever we're seeing pushback in this, uh, in this society of cancel culture, I think we have to 
uh, applauded and 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 recognized the, the the courage that it often takes to take these kind of positions. I think what we're seeing is, is something very obvious: is that retired military uh, personnel are almost uh, unified in their opposition to this indoctrination process, whereas people who are current military, especially in the upper leadership ranks, uh, are totally committed to it, which I think obviously indicates the strong political pressure coming out of the Biden administration uh, to take these positions. Now, I believe they should uh, not. They should push back even if they're active, but I don't think we're seeing much of that at this point. You know, uh, you had mentioned Alan West, who who is truly, in my opinion, just a real hero, a military hero, quite frankly. And uh, as he ran for Congress here and uh, did not succeed, he ended up going to Texas, and I believe he's got some position of authority in the uh, in uh, Texas. I think he resigned that position recently to do something else. Uh, any update on what's going on with him? Well, I think he was the the head of the uh, the Texas uh, Republican Party. I think that. Probably not the official title, but something of that nature. Right, right. Uh, he had recovered from a very significant uh, accident, motorcycle accident, but now he's back in in uh, in, in true form. I uh, he seems to be uh, not wanting to re-enter the political ranks uh, because I think he thinks that diminishes his impact. So I think he's uh, trying to do it with the NOGs, uh, NGOs rather. Uh, and to uh, try to influence the outcomes through these uh, non-governmental organizations, Bob. Interesting. Well, thank you for that update, Andy. So I understand that you've uh, just completed a pretty interesting book. Yes. I mean, I've been uh, recommending for your for your listeners' books uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, this book that came out in the 2017, I'm just getting around to reading it. I can't read everything. The summer is a good point to read, obviously. It's a book called Destined for War by Graham Allison. Destined for War, Graham Allison. Really, it, it points out what I think is uh, probably the, the, the logical truth of a situation that uh, if all current trajectories are maintained, war will take place between the United States and China. Uh, you know, that is a, a very dramatic statement. Uh, Allison defends that uh, in, a, in a really uh, articulate and very, very uh, a meaningful manner. Uh, but he says this can be avoided and every attempt must be made to bring some variant of a peace res- uh, resolution between the United States and China before this inevitable war takes place. Uh, and it's an, it's an excellent book. It's done at the very highest level of, of, of uh, documented information. And so for any of your, your listeners who are interested in trying to understand uh, the nature of this conflict, the, the emergence of a, uh, a, certainly a comparable world power in China, uh, as compared to the United States' power. Uh, I think we uh, the book Destined for War is the book that should be read for this purpose, Bob. Yeah, thank you for that input. It's kind of interesting. My, my point of view is that we're already at war with China. It's not traditional warfare. It's cyber warfare. It's uh, intellectual property theft. And you can go down the list. I think you know the list as well as anyone. And uh, Well, we've, we've talked about that on several occasions, the concept of asymmetric warfare, which is long promoted by Chinese colonels in the... Uh, uh, in the PLA, uh, that uh, this is an advocacy, uh, asymmetric warfare, and you're indicating what that is, uh, is warfare by other means. And you're, you're, you may be absolutely right. If we could eventually document not only the, uh, the release of uh, COVID-19 from the Wuhan viral uh, laboratories, but that it was done with any intent, either in the or- original release or, in fact, in allowing it to disseminate worldwide, uh, I think we're looking at a, a, obviously a definable situation of warfare uh, of China, particularly against the United States. 
Yes, and so, uh, you know, did, did the author comment at all about that asymmetric warfare? That Did he suggest that perhaps that we are already at war with, uh, with China? That, that was the indication. It's, it's, uh, that was not a, a definitive position at, at this point. Uh, uh, he did indicate that there were certain uh, adversarial hostilities that were going on. I, I think, uh, as in my remembrance, uh, having just read about the book, my remembrance should be good, uh, he did indicate that certainly there were, there were strong uh, areas of conflict. I think he, he stopped just short of calling it uh, out uh, overt war. But on the other hand, I think we may never have uh, the o overt warfare that was represented by World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, and Korea, and so forth. We may never again have that kind of war. Uh, so our leaders must update their mindset in terms of, of how they perceive what is war and what is not war, because I think it, very likely we are at war right now, Bob, as you indicated. Yeah, and in fact, uh, the uh, my pillow guy uh, just ma made the case that uh, actually... China interfered in our elections in a major way uh, through the uh, the uh, Dominion machines and uh, the the voting machines that, that software that was being used. So uh, it, it's a pretty serious situation. By the way, I don't know if you're noticing, uh, paying attention, to what's going on with the audits, but this is quite interesting. And slowly but surely, to, to me, it looks like the Democrats are being painted in a very uncomfortable corner. Well, there, there's no doubt, and I think it's going to uh, come to uh, a head. At least I'm, I'm optimistic that's going to happen. I, I, I have serious doubts that it will involve the uh, reinstatement of, of President Trump, as he should be in office. Uh, on the other hand, I think that, if nothing else, it will highlight the fact that the elections of 2022 must be, must be legalized into every means at our disposal. Uh, if we continue to move towards the ease of voting as compared towards the legality, as compared to the legality of voting, I think we're going to find that 2022 will be as corrupt as 2020. Hmm. So I'm, I'm optimistic that the audits will take us in that direction, Bob. Yeah, I think probably the red states will get, uh, will reform uh, voting, uh, create voting reforms, as they've done, for example, in Georgia and Florida and other places. Uh, probably the blue states will probably <laughs> go right along with the program for uh, that uh, been been proposed by uh, Biden and, and his administration. Well, from what, from what I've been reading, uh, the focus of the left going into 2022 and 2024 uh, is going to be Texas, Florida, and South Carolina. They see those three, three states as being extremely vulnerable. I I, I could debate whether that's true, uh, but I think there's reason to believe it might be mm -hmm. uh, based on the demographics primarily. Uh, so, you know, we have to wait and see. I, I think we can't become unduly optimistic, as many on the right are in terms of 2022. I, I, I would love to have that unbridled optimism for that uh, election cycle. Uh, and yet I can see too many other variables uh, that may be at, uh, in, in play that may affect those 2022 elections. So. Um, I think we have to be on guard. I haven't seen much of that from the uh, elected Republican Party uh, at this point. So uh, I think they've got to get on this immediately. I don't think there's any, any slack time left uh, to try to ensure the legality of the 2022 elections. Somewhat in keeping with that, if you look at the recent returns on the New York um, uh, 
New York City election with the ranked choice voting for the first time, their count was off by 135,000. This was identified by Eric Adams, who was the leading candidate. Most of those votes, although they're being attributed to a, a, a testing failure that, uh, where they left testing votes in the machine, uh, it seems to have led to a, uh, an attempt to, uh, to damage Eric Adams in the Democrat primary. So uh, I think we're looking at ultimately what may be voter fraud in New York City with the intent of defeating a strong police candidate, uh, Captain Eric Adams from the from the New York City Police Force. That is former. such an interesting story. Uh, there's apparently 941,000 in-person votes that have been counted, 124,000 absentee ballots. But then they realized 135,000 of these votes were erroneous because it was a test. They do this uh, ranking of candidates. So in other words, uh, who comes in first, second, and third, and which determines who gets in the runoff and that kind of thing. And it is complicated, and I'm quite sure a lot more difficult to do than just doing the absolute voter count and the winner takes all. So uh, that's the reason. One, one, one of the great rules of the, the voting process, Bob, is the greater the complexity, the greater is the chance for fraud. Yep. That is just as simple as it can be stated. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, and I think we're going to see, uh, with, and I, I have no major problem with the, the theoretical concept of ranked choice voting, but it does add a tremendous level of voting complexity and tabulation uh, to the voting process that uh, allows for greater manipulation at several different levels of the election process, Bob. So in that regard, Adams is uh, an interesting, uh, Eric Adams is an interesting guy who looks like he may have won this thing, uh, at least the Democrat primary. And if that's the case, uh, that indicates to me that uh, New Yorkers are looking for law and order. I, I would suggest that's the case. Eric Adams, uh, you know, back when he first emerged as the leader of the uh, the Black Police Coalition back in, uh, I'm guessing, the, the 90s, uh, I lose track of time, uh, it was very strong and uh, there was nothing wrong with what he was saying. He, but he, I thought any attempt to divide the police force into black and white was not inherently valuable. Uh, on the other hand, he served very successfully as the Brooklyn Borough uh, President. Uh, I think he's been, a, uh, since that point, a very strong law and order guy. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right, Bob. I think New York City is, is sick and tired of this kind of allowance for, uh, for criminality and the, uh, the vulgarities being reintroduced into New York City that Rudy Giuliani was very successful at eliminating in the early 90s. Yeah, and of course, uh, this could be the canary in the coal mine in terms of the elections going into 2022 because law and order, I think, could be the precipitous you know, uh, uh, issue for uh, Democrats. Now, they're trying to change the sentence and suggest that, wait a minute, Democrats didn't, or Republicans didn't vote for this. They're the ones that uh, were trying to defund the police. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, mayor of uh, mayor of Chicago, indicated, I guess, yesterday before yesterday that there was absolutely no increase in uh, in uh, statistical crime or, or murder or any of the crimes of violence. You know, and uh, as Tucker Carlson uh, last night, I guess, pointed out on his show, those numbers can be absolutely disproved. So this amazing process of just bold lying yeah. uh, directly to the media, in this case, uh, Lori Lightfoot. Uh, where she tries to suggest that crime is on the downswing in, in Chicago uh, is, is a typical tactic of, of the left. They do not mind lying. They do not mind being caught in the lie because their general premise is once it's out, it becomes embedded in the mind of, of, of most of the people on the left. Bob. Yeah, Harry Reid, used to be the uh, uh, leader of the Senate, 
uh, majority leader of the Senate, uh, said, hey, you, you got the tax, you made false claims about Romney's taxes, I believe the issue was. And uh, he, he just said, hey, we won, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, he just essentially acknowledged that he had lied with the intent of damaging Mitt Romney. And, and again, the, the Democrats are very, very bold in this area. And with the media almost 100 uh, percent on their side, it's it's very hard. Any retractions are on on page 30 someplace. And right. uh, it's very hard to get that out of the American mindset once they plant the idea. And, and this gets back and I don't want to cite Hitler and Nazism, but Goebbels propaganda process was the big lie. And I think they're uh, they're just major proponents of that. We can see this. We can see this constantly. Before we run out of time, let me just mention something that's near and dear to my, my heart as a former Westchester County resident in, in New York State. Once again, the, uh, the federal government is pressuring uh, the suburbs, in this case Westchester County, to uh, desegregate their, their housing. This is to uh, eliminate single home um, uh, zoning. Uh, their intent is to bring in low-cost, multiple-unit uh, uh, housing. Uh, they they did this, and I had a relationship with the mayor of Yonkers back in the latter part of the 80s, Hank Spallone, who was uh, excoriated for challenging this. That was, you know, they turned Spallone into a vicious racist. I had uh, I knew I knew Spallone. He was not. He was just resisting this this uh, destruction of the the, the suburbs. Uh, it happened again with Rob Astorino as Westchester County Executive, where again the federal government wanted them to desegregate their zoning process essentially, and now it's happening again with the the obvious intent of of, of creating a uh, a suburb that is 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 debased as is the city. And the city for a New Yorker is always New York City, uh, the, the city itself, Bob. And that's a, that's a push I guess I'm going to have nationwide. I, <clears throat> hopefully, uh, they will, uh, will have uh, federalism. In other words, we'll, we'll make sure that local officials resist this kind of effort. But, uh, yeah, I think they'd like to have uh, Section 6 uh, housing all over the country, quite frankly, is what, is what it looks like. Well, there's no doubt, and uh, again, this is, uh, I think they believe that if they can uh, populate the suburbs with, uh, I'm, I'm not going to categorize them, but the, the low economic end people, which uh, which will be the case, uh, I think they see those as their voters, and I think they feel they can gain stronger control of the suburban and rural areas by uh, by the uh, what they call the uh, the desegregation of, of housing, Bob. Yeah. So I think it's uh, again a, a politicized attempt to uh, to win elections uh, in a manner that they could not win in any fair election. So they're trying to create imbalances that would enable them to win unfairly, Bob. Andrew Joppa, again, author of Josephus of Oz, a terrific read, off-topic for today's conversation, but I just encourage you to uh, take a look at uh, Josephus of Oz. Andy, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston and uh, author of several books. His latest is What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's also the author of several terrific books. His latest is What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. He also writes his own column for uh, Newsmax. It's not only weekly, it's several times a week. Uh, you can find it on Newsmax.com. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I always enjoy it so much. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. So your latest column, a fa- uh, Four Famous Fallacies in Fake News War on Trump. Boy, the, we know the press hasn't been kind to him, but uh, you put, make some great points. Maybe you could tell us about it. Well, you kind of get the idea that the, the mainstream media didn't like Trump very much. I think uh, the... Uh, you know, unending uh, stories about him that many didn't prove to be very accurate. And uh, also the timing of the stories seemed to be selected to hurt his uh, election and, and uh, in re-election and so on. So I just mentioned four of them, and uh, four that I think are pretty famous. I think the one I mentioned was the Wuhan Laboratory leak, or and uh, in fact, anything that, that Trump said about the virus or the source of it, of course, would be would be blasted as being uh, untrue and uh, not worth investigating. And the fact that he had the audacity to any challenge, the fact that uh, WHO, World Health Organization, and, and the Chinese uh, Communist Party had covered up a lot of very damaging evidence. Then there's a massive story that plagued him throughout his 
whole presidency was uh, the, the Russian collusion thing, which was really uh, prompted by the fact that Hillary had enormous email problems with her 30,000 emails, and and it was a way of distracting from her issues. And, uh, you know, the, the deep state turned out to be pretty deep after all, mm-hmm. although that was that was disclaimed uh, vigorously by the media. Now, so, revisiting, it's always kind of sensitive to revisit the capital uh, events that occurred that were so so destructive and, and you know, during the uh, Save America rally that Trump had on the National Mall and uh, and the charges of insurrection and so on that attended that. And it was not a good day in our history, but it's really a matter of how, you know, the question is, did, he, did Trump really provoke it? What exactly did he say? And what he said was nothing of the sort that would uh, sound like an attempt to provoke insurrection. And the fourth fourth issue I mentioned just in this group was the famous uh, uh, closure of the park, you know, park police closure, so so called closure, uh, as Trump uh, you know, went through Lafayette Park for uh, uh, you know to be and he was photographed at St. John's Church after after a meeting in the. Uh, at the White House, and uh, the claim of the media that this was just a opportunistic uh, photo op, and that police had teared, had used tear gas to clear the protesters at the time, just so that Trump could have a photo op, and that that wasn't true either. So, I just happened to pick four of these, four of these rather famous ones. I think we could find dozens and dozens of cases where, where you know. Uh, uh, there were misrepresentations and things taken out of context and so on. But he was, you know, I, I think uh, many would agree that he was treated very unfairly. Very unfairly indeed. In fact, uh, to me, uh, these issues just point out how the Democrat Party and the mainstream media are just in lockstep with regard to how they handle these things. And it almost looks like they're planning together and how they're going to orchestrate it. And I'll just make a mention about uh, January 6th as it, as it evolves right now. There was one person that was killed, and uh, quite frankly, I hope that someday uh, we find out who her murderer was because she was uh, killed right there in the Capitol. She wasn't doing anything. She she shouldn't have been there, no question about that, but she was just standing there, and uh, she was killed. The other thing is there's, I think uh, Roger Stone said yesterday that, hey, I was invited to, to on January 6th to come and uh, to uh, enter the, to go to the Capitol, to be among the first to go into the Capitol. <laughs> Something to that effect. I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that it looked like this entire thing was actually utilized uh, to uh, well, building the fence, all these things, and creating this insurrection, making building the story way out of proportion. Some of the people that were arrested are still in jail with no prospect for a trial. It's uh, it's this just way, and of course, was it yesterday or the day before? Uh, the White House was surrounded, all gates and all ways into the White House by these uh, 
climate change folks that want the, the uh, president to throw away the bipartisan agreement that they developed for infrastructure and adopt the, the, uh, the Green New Deal. So uh, to me, and, and of course, did you hear anything about it in the press? I didn't. No, no, you don't. You don't hear those kind of things, and and there are a lot of issues that we're we're hearing of. Uh, and we maybe I tend to give some of them some credence. That if you look at, at those uh, those that that were in the Capitol that day, you know, some apparently kind of wandered in because the door was open and and there was no resistance, and and uh, you know, there's. Suggestion is that some of those people that are being locked up were were just kind of straggling in and basically, uh, you know, not not being violent. Nor nor did some of them even see anything untoward really going on. Uh, they saw, you know, guards chatting with people and so on. Nothing that would be not now that was distant in, in certain areas. So they didn't they, they admit they didn't see was going on in other areas and, and we saw some of that on, on video it was it was pretty ugly mm-hmm. and you also the uh, you know a lot of a lot of stories now that the FBI really had informants in, in people placed in the in the crowd and uh, and you know we're hearing a lot of call them rumors or whatever that that a lot of these people who are being indicted uh, there are some that are being indicted, and some aren't, and the ones that are being aren't that aren't being indicted seem suspiciously like like they uh, are are you know contacts of our government and so on. And, right. and and then as you mentioned, the you know there was these long stories about one officer being hit in the head with a with a fire extinguisher and and having. Uh, some kind of concussion, and you know, Brady was dying of that. It turns out, even his family said that's not true. Um, talking about the the casualties, well, they seem to all be natural causes. I think there were like four, but one, with the exception of uh, of Babbitt, who was shot, unarmed woman, and uh, unlike everyone else, uh, they won't reveal the. The uh, uh, officer in the Capitol who who shot her, and uh, that seems that seems uh, uh, rather strange, and uh, and uh, something we ought, we don't often witness, where uh, someone who shoots an unarmed person is not at least uh, questioned about it, or the name is not released. So there's so many that. Seem like uh, they're not, you know, not being revealed, and that feeds suspicion. And the suspicion maybe feeds rumors that aren't fair, uh, aren't true, but they could simply clear them by yeah. by being more uh, transparent to the public. Absolutely. Again, Professor Larry Bell, I, I'd encourage you to visit uh, Newsmax.com. His column is called On Point. You'll find it listed there on the right-hand side of the, the Newsmax uh, website. 
and uh, the latest of four famous fallacies in fake news war on Trump. Also, highly recommend the book, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional? Just a great read. Going back 13 billion years until today. <laughs> it's uh, so interesting. Professor, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I always enjoy it. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Tomorrow, we're going to visit with the co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance, uh, Keith Law. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government. He'll be joining us, as well as Dr. George Markovich. He's an orthopedic surgeon, and the former mayor of Naples, Bill Barnett, will be with us as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. for listening to The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>